Let's do something. Let, let's, I didn't do this in the first service, but I, I just feel that we need to do this. Now, let, let's bow together again. I just want to encourage you, if you have a situation in your life right now that feels like ashes, or, or maybe it's not you personally or directly, maybe it's somebody you're concerned about. That's what it feels like. That's what it looks like. Well, you just ask God to make beauty rise out of it. Ask Him to do a work in it. Will you claim His promises? Will you ask Him for hope or healing, salvation, restoration, repentance, whatever it may be? Trust Him with that. Ask the Spirit of God to intervene, whatever the situation may be. Father, you tell us to cast all of our cares on you because you care for us. And Lord, you know the, the, the cares, the problems, the, the difficulties, the, the situations that are represented in this room or people watching online. And Lord, I just pray that as people cast their cares upon you, that uh, you give them peace, that you give them comfort, that you give them hope, that you give them assurance. And Lord, we ask for the power of the, the Spirit of God to intervene in the situations that are being prayed for. And Lord, for you uh, to do a work and pray that out of the ashes that beauty would rise, that you, for the glory of your name, uh, would transform lives and that you would uh, fix situations and, and circumstances and God that you would um, just intervene supernaturally and, and do things that only uh, you can do. Father, um, we talk about restoration today. I pray that you bring restoration where it's needed in our lives, in our families, in our community. Lord, in our nation, God, we need you. We often have to, to say that we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And God, so I, I ask that you'd speak to us and minister to us in this time. And God, I pray that where it's needed, that you would grant us repentance. Father, that you would forgive us and cleanse us and uh, fill us with your spirit. And God, I just pray for an anointing from on high now to uh, preach your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you've got a Bible, let's go back uh, to the book of Lamentations to, to finish that up uh, today. Really, we have chapters 4 and 5 left. We're going to focus on chapter 5 because, you know, if you look at 4 and 5, there's, again, a lot of kind of saying the, the same thing uh, about judgment. And uh, I don't want to overly depress you by reading both of the chapters uh, at, the, at the same time. But uh, just to, to review just a little bit to kind of bring us to where we are. Uh, because we've kind of had a, a break in here because of some different things uh, going on. I've been in this weird pattern of preaching every other week at True Life uh, since late May now. But uh, so basically chapter 1... Uh, first couple of chapters, really, we talked about the fact that sin leads to suffering. 
that they were under the judgment of God because of their idolatry and, and rebellion. And then we talked about the fact that when we suffer, that part of our response to that is, is grief. It's, it's lamentation. We looked at that. And then uh, Preston uh, walked us through the first part of chapter 3. And we talked about, though, that even in the midst of suffering, there's hope because God is merciful and, and, and He's faithful. And then the, the last time that, that I preached from Lamentations, we talked about suffering and sovereignty, the fact that God is sovereign, that He rules and reigns, that He's in control uh, no matter what happens, and because of that, that we can trust Him. Well, one of the things that's in the background of the book of Lamentations is the book of Jeremiah and the fact that God, uh, through Jeremiah, told them that they were going to go into exile, they were going to go into captivity because of, of their sin, that he was disciplining them, but this that it was only going to be for 70 years. So God's plan is always for restoration. That's, that's his heart. That's his desire. Uh, when God disciplines his children, it, it's not to punish us. Listen to me, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Jesus took our punishment on the cross. When God disciplines us as a child of God, it's to ultimately restore us. It's to turn us away from our sin. It's to deliver us, to get us back on the right path. It's a little pain now to keep us from greater pain later. It's to keep us from destroying ourselves. God's heart is for restoration. And, and I think if we're honest today, there's a lot of things that need restoring. I mean, as we uh, sit here on this July 4th weekend, could we agree that there's a lot of things that need restoration in our society? I mean, there's a lot of things in our nation that are broken. Uh, you know, as we deal with the question of abortion and, you know, the aftermath of uh, the decision and everything that's led up to that, as we deal uh, with, with racial issues, uh, as, as we deal with the breakdown of, uh, of family, as we deal with absentee fathers, as we deal with economic problems and things that are going on in, in the government, and we can just go on and on and on, uh, there, there's a lot of things that need restoring. And a lot of times, though, I think um, churches and preachers, uh, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of sermons being preached today about how the church needs to turn America back to God and how, you know, we need to restore America to a Christian nation. That is not what I think the Bible teaches. I don't think there's such a thing, according to Scripture, as a Christian nation. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. I don't believe our calling biblically as we seek to build the kingdom of God and to fulfill the Great Commission is to make America a Christian nation. I think our calling is to make America a nation of Christians, real Christians, true followers of Jesus Christ, disciples of Christ, because if that happens, you see, the, the whole thing of making America a Christian nation is moralism. The gospel transforms us from the inside out. And if people are really getting saved and people are being discipled, they are going to live differently and families are going to be different and churches are going to be different and communities are going to be different and ultimately a nation will be different. We're in a battle ultimately 
for hearts and minds. You see, the Bible tells us, I, I don't believe, you know, I believe the future of our nation is in the future of the church. The Bible says that judgment begins the house of God. If there's going to be restoration in the nation, it starts with restoration in the church. And, and the reason I, 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 part of the reason I say this is because the Bible is very clear. And again, I think churches get this backwards a lot of times is that we are not to expect non-Christians to act like Christians, to think like Christians, to believe like Christians. I mean, just read 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 teaches us that we're to deal with sin in the church. There's accountability in the church. There's discipline in the church. But Paul goes to great lengths to say, I mean, because even in that chapter, he, he's telling the church to expel a sinning member from its membership. But he says, I'm not talking to you about the people of the world. I'm talking to you about people in the church. So what else do you expect a non-Christian to do but act, think, believe like a non-Christian? Um, and, and so I think if we want to make an impact in the world, if we want to see restoration in, uh, in our country, it begins with us who are followers of Jesus Christ experiencing repentance and restoration in our own lives, in our own homes, in our own churches, where we then can boldly declare the gospel of Jesus with integrity, where people aren't looking at us and saying, well, why should I listen to you? Because this is what I see from you. Does that make sense? Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. And there's two reasons uh, I'm sharing this example. One, I think it's a good illustration. And, and, and second, maybe it's for uh, <laughs> accountability's sake and just to make sure there are no rumors that, that are spread around here. So, um, but, 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 but there's a point where I'm going with this. Okay, so while we uh, were in Honduras, of course, the, the Dobbs ruling came down. And um, we shared something with you. It's, it's, it's on the church's Facebook page if you're in our... Uh, I guess our, our database as far as being a regular attender, we sent out a text for this. But uh, there's a man named David Robinson who used to be a member of True Life. He's a pastor in Washington now, but he's also an attorney. So he's uniquely qualified to speak to this issue. And he did a podcast on this that I would highly recommend that you listen to if you want to have an understanding of what is going on with uh, you know, the abortion case and the abortion issue. And, and, and basically, he kind of explains, you know, how we got to this and all these kind of things. But uh, he, he makes the point that we should celebrate this ruling because, you know, what it says is abortion is not a constitutional right. But we should also be sad because this is only a half measure. And what he means by that is this. The Constitution says in the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments, that every person has the right to life and liberty. Based on that, what he would say, and I think he's right, what the justices should have said is that a baby in the womb is a person under the law, therefore they have the right to life and liberty, thereby meaning that abortion would be illegal in the entire United States instead of just making it a state-by-state -state thing. And so David says, then ultimately, probably what we need to pursue with this is that we need a constitutional amendment that would declare that. 
because the, the issue with abortion is very simply, when does whatever you want to call what's in a mother's womb become a human being? You don't need the Bible to answer this question. Science answers it for us. There's only one possible time that could happen. It's at the moment of fertilization, at the moment of conception. At that moment, there's everything that you, a person is ever going to have as far as being a human being, as far as their DNA, and then it's just a matter of development from there. That means at the moment of conception, if you have a human being uh, who is a person, then they should be accorded the same rights as any other person that exists within the United States. Now, if you want to say that that child, then, that human being, is not a person under the law, do you understand what you're doing? You know what that justified in our country? Slavery, racism, that evil. It justified women not being able to vote, sexism, which is wrong as well. And it's the same basis, then, for trying to argue that a child should not have the same rights as anybody else. And it's wrong, and it's evil. Now, I didn't say all that in the first service, so there you go. There's something extra for you, I guess. But this is where I'm actually going. So, um, you know, we were in Honduras when this came down. Well, not yesterday, but the Saturday before in Morristown at the courthouse. There was a pro-abortion rally and a counter-protest that then took place while that was going on. So I was at a meeting of pastors on Thursday, and we heard, uh, we're told, that the same thing was going to happen again yesterday. Apparently it also uh, was supposed to happen in Dandridge and some of the other surrounding counties. And uh, so it, it did happen yesterday in, in Morristown, probably a couple hundred people there. There wasn't a counter-protest uh, that, that I'm aware of yesterday. But, uh, so, just in case you hear any rumors, just so you'll know, Ben Shown, who's a teaching pastor at Arrowhead, and me, we're good friends, we decided to go uh, to this. Uh, not to counter-protest, but to see if we could talk to people. Um, and so... Uh, you know, they're kind of a line of people with signs and all this kind of thing lined up there. And, but some of the people kind of hang back on the courthouse lawn. And we tried to engage them in conversation. Why? How else are you going to affect people? Now listen, if, if it's somebody's conviction, I mean, in anything somebody wants to do to stand up for life, God bless them. And, and if somebody's conviction, they need to have a bullhorn and yell at people, so be it. I just don't think that's the best way to make a difference in people's lives. Um, we just decided to go and see if we could find some people who would talk to us. And we found a few who would. And we, we talked to one group for a little bit who, um, you know, they were a little belligerent, <laughs> I guess, uh, about it. But then, um, sometimes God just gives you divine appointments. And um, there were two young ladies that we probably talked to for almost an hour. And, um, you know, when, when I, like I say, I'm guessing there was probably a couple hundred people there. I mean, as, as people came and went. And when, when I looked at the crowd, most of the people, I mean, not everybody. There were some older people. There were a few males. Most of the people were young women. 
I mean, the, the primary demographic was females in their 20s. And you, you remember on Father's Day when I was talking about how somebody's discipling their kids? Somebody's discipling their kids. These are people who have been discipled by our culture. And, and my guess, I mean, some of them are very passionate, but as we talk to people, some of them, I don't think they really even get why they're there. They're parroting things that they've heard. But anyway, uh, as we talked to these two young ladies, one of them said she was a Christian, one of them clearly wasn't. But, uh, and, and like one of them was carrying a sign when she walked out, and, and I can't even, you know, say to you in church, uh, I probably shouldn't, uh, the elders might not be too happy with me, what her sign said. But you know what? She's not a Christian. I don't care what her sign said. Um, I mean, we can get all up in the air over all the wrong things sometimes, I think. And um, again, we had a completely civil conversation for almost an hour. We talked to each other. We listened to each other. Um, they let us share the gospel with them. And even without saying her name, I don't feel like it's right for me to say some of the things uh, that were said. It was just kind of a holy moment to have a stranger open up her heart that way. But can I just tell you that sometimes people that are out carrying signs that are offensive and shouting slogans and yelling through a bullhorn, that they are broken and crushed on the inside. And again, we can yell and shout and scream, but unless I'm missing something in the Bible, that's not what I see what the church is called to do. Um, I mean, if this keeps happening, Ben and I are probably going to keep going back some and trying to do the same thing. Um, you know, the Bible says that we're to love our enemies. And, and you know what? I, I believe as Christians, you see, the, 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 the culture is not our enemy. You know, as Christians, I, I mean, I, I, as far as I'm concerned, I don't have any enemies. Now, if somebody wants to be my enemy, that's fine, but Jesus tells me to love them, Right? Our enemy is not the culture. Our enemy is not each other. Listen, uh, you know, we went to Southern Baptist Convention a few weeks ago, and all in all, it was a very positive experience. But, uh, you know, the thing that frustrates me so much is people who essentially agree with each other can get so mad at each other over either a small disagreement or sometimes it's not even that they believe the same doctrine but you have, you want to apply it maybe in some different ways, and you get into these secondary issues, you act like you're, they're enemies. Listen, we have an enemy. Ephesians 6 12, he's the enemy of our soul, Satan. But it's not each other, it's not the world uh, around us. And, and, and the point that I'm making is as the church of Jesus Christ, we have the greatest power in the world. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the Word of God, the truth. We have uh, the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. But I don't think we really believe that. Because I think if we really believe that, we wouldn't, have, we wouldn't be so defensive. We wouldn't get so offended so easily. We wouldn't be so up in the air yelling about so many things. 
I mean, if you've got the truth, you ought to be pretty confident. But if the truth is the gospel of what Jesus has done for us, that ought to make us humble. But if we're both confident and humble, we ought to be able to love people and speak the truth to people and trust God with the results without getting all up in the air about it, it would seem like to me. Listen, if, if there's going to be restoration, and, and we need it. I mean, if you're a parent, you've got concerns about where the future is headed for your kids and your grandkids. But we're a part of that. I mean, only the gospel can change human hearts. And again, law is important. Politics is important. Government is important. All these things are important. But if you don't change hearts and you don't change minds, laws are insignificant because somebody else will just come along and change it. That's our job. But if the church is going to be restored, the church is not a denomination, the church is not a corporate entity, the church is not a building, the church is people, it's us, and it comes from us being restored. And so that's why we as believers, if we're honest, it's what Martin Luther said, the Christian life is a life of ongoing repentance. And when, and when I'm talking about repentance, what I'm saying with repentance is repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of heart that results in a change of action. I need to repent every day. Sometimes I'm spiritually cold. Sometimes I do things that Scripture says not to do. Sometimes I don't do things that, that, that God says to do. I, I think part of the reason why I felt convicted to go and try to share the gospel at that place yesterday Part of the reason was an experience in Honduras. Uh, you know, John and I were supposed to meet, needed to meet with Pastor Carlos. Uh, we really needed to meet with him because I was supposed to meet with him in January about something that we really needed to talk to him about. But it, if some of you haven't been around since January, but maybe some of you remember Justin Self and I were supposed to be going to Honduras in, in January. We got to the airport, our flight was canceled, and then we learned that afternoon that Justin had COVID, so we didn't get to go to Honduras. So this has been a meeting that's delayed like six months. It needed to happen. Uh, and, I mean, it's something important. So we worked out a time, we thought to meet with him, and we we're trying to find a place to meet because, you know, the Boys and Girls Club going on, that kind of thing. And um, so he took us like a couple of doors down uh, from where the, the church building is. Well, I thought he was taking us to a house of some of his church members, which he was, so we could have a place to meet, except in his mind, we weren't going to meet. I'm not sure what happened with the communication, but uh, he was taking us there to pray for his church members, which is fine. It didn't, it didn't take that long. Then we're like, okay, can we meet now? But he then wanted to take us somewhere else to make a visit so we could talk to a couple of parents of one of the kids in their club. And so John and I are asking about it, and he's like, what's the purpose of visiting all this? He's like, well, we, you know, we want to share the gospel with them. And we're like, well, we really need to meet. But then I think we ultimately uh, you know, decided, well, sharing the gospel with somebody is more important than having this meeting, even though this meeting is six months late and it really needs uh, to, to happen. So uh, you know, we went and ended up, we didn't meet with him because we spent an hour with these people and ran out of time, but both, both the, the husband and the wife both repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and it just reminded me, and I lose sight of this sometimes because there's so much to do in leading a church, that there is nothing more important than sharing the gospel with people. 
So, you know, for me, going and trying to share the gospel of this thing on Saturday was almost like, in a sense, repentance uh, out of that conviction and that reminder. You know, sometimes in our marriage, there's a guy named Gary Thomas who says something I think is so true. He says, couples don't so much fall out of love, they fall out of repentance. There's things that we need to say I'm sorry for. There's things that we need to say I forgive you for. And we don't repent and we don't forgive. And things build up and it looks like you know there's insurmountable problems. There's these walls built that can never be scaled. But it's really was built one brick at a time. And it wasn't necessary if we repented. Happens with other relationships. Happens in, in, in every area of life. And so I, I think as we come to the end of the book of Lamentations, chapter 5, you know, we, we've talked about that the rest of the book is uh, these acrostic poems. That stops in chapter 5. Chapter 5 is a prayer. It, it's, it's unique from the rest uh, of the book is, uh, as Jeremiah pours out his heart to God and as he's been broken uh, through this discipline over sin, he owns the sin and uh, he prays a prayer of repentance. Again, repentance, a change of uh, mind, at least a change of heart that results in a change of action. And, and, and we talked about this in the first message, but let me just remind you, there's different reasons we suffer. It's not always because of our sin. It, be, it could be because someone else's sin. You know, we sometimes just live in a fallen world. Uh, we, we suffer uh, sometimes because God is pruning us. We suffer sometimes because we're doing the right things, and, and God is using this suffering to bring further growth and, and, and further usefulness. But sometimes we do suffer because of our own sin, like they were. And if we're suffering because of sin, we can't pray our way out of it. We can only repent our way out of it. And so here is, is the big idea that you want, I want you to get today. And the message is very simple. I just want to give you this big idea. And as we talk about repentance, I want to just try to show you why we can repent and how we can repent. But this is the big idea. Sin leads to suffering because God disciplines his children. Hebrews 12, God disciplines those that he loved. If, if you don't experience chastisement, you're not truly a child of God. Sin leads to suffering because God disciplines his children when they sin. But, key phrase, repentance is the road to restoration. Repentance is the road to restoration. You need, re you need restoration in an area of your life? Repentance is the key. You need restoration in a relationship? Repentance is uh, the key. We need restoration in the church? Repentance is the key. We need restoration as a nation? Repentance is the key. And sometimes, listen, don't think this way. Sometimes people think, uh, you know, when you talk about repentance, it's like, you know, he's being heavy-handed. He's telling me what I'll do and these kinds of things. That's not repentance. Listen, repentance is one of the greatest gifts God has ever given. It is only a gift of his grace. It is something that is supernatural that the Holy Spirit brings about in us. And if, if we can truly change... And and be different and experience freedom through that, that is a gracious gift of God's grace. So, let's read Lamentations chapter 5, and again, then we'll just kind of briefly talk about why we can repent and how we can repent. But uh, Jeremiah, I believe, says this. Again, it's a prayer. He says, Remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Look and behold our reproach. 
And then he, over the next several verses, begins again to lay out some of the awful things they're experiencing because of God's discipline upon them. He says their inheritance has been turned over to aliens, their houses to foreigners. We've become orphans and waifs. Our mothers are like widows. We pay for the water we drink. Our wood comes at a price. So, again, they're destitute. Um, he says they pursued our heels. We labor and have no rest. It's like they're slaves. We've given our hand to the Egyptians and the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. Our fathers sinned and are no more, but we bear their iniquities. And, and remember, we're going to see later on, he's owning it. This isn't an excuse. It's just the, 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 the reality. Several generations had led up to this. At any point, if they would have repented, God would have relented of his judgment. But the previous generations, nor their generation, had done this. And so God said, enough is enough. God is not punishing them for the sins of their fathers. It's just all been a process. God works through processes. There have been generations of sin. And, and now and they were continuing in sin, and God says, I'm going to deal with it now, no more. Um, he says, servants, rule over us, verse 8. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven because of the fever of famine. They ravished the women in Zion, the maidens in the cities of Judah. I mean, this was awful. These were the kind of things they were experiencing. Uh, princes were hung up by their hands, and elders were not respected. Young men groaned at the millstones. Boys staggered under loads of wood. The elders have ceased gathering at the gate, and the young men from their music. The joy of our heart has ceased. Our dance has turned into mourning. I mean, they were in an awful, painful situation. It was ashes. But then look at what he says. He says, the crown has fallen from our head. And this is probably the key line of the whole chapter. Woe to us. Judgment be upon us because we have sinned. He's owning it. He says, because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. Because of Mount Zion, which is desolate, with foxes walking about on it. And then, and this is how he concludes. He focuses again on God and his character. He says, You, O Lord, remain forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever and forsake us for so long a time? Again, another key line. Turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. What's turning back to God? It's repentance. But notice he's asking God to turn him back. Listen, repentance is not a human effort. It's a divine work within us that enables us uh, to actually repent. Turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. Renew, uh, renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are very angry with us. Uh, so, why can we repent? Well, I want to give you two reasons from this. Number one, we can repent because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Remember, every message, uh, both Preston and I, as we've gone through this, we've said the whole Bible's about Jesus. So we're even in the Old Testament. 
Where, even in the book of Lamentations, do you see these connections to Christ? Well, I want to point out two to you in the last two chapters of, of Lamentations chapter 5. We didn't read chapter 4, but uh, go back to the very last verse of chapter 4, verse 22, and I want you to notice what it says. It says, The punishment of your iniquity is accomplished, O daughter of Zion. He will no longer send you into captivity. He will punish your iniquity, O daughter of Edom. Now, what, what he's saying is that... Um, your punishment is coming to an end. I'm going to turn my attention to Edom and to these other nations uh, that have mistreated you. Uh, but th it didn't happen immediately, right? Uh, I think that's why verse 22 is, of chapter 5 is in there. He says, unless you have utterly rejected us and are very angry with us. I think when you put the whole thing together, God is saying... There's coming an end to this, but it's 70 years. This was near the beginning of the exile, so uh, it's not going to be immediate, but it is going uh, to happen. Now, there's a couple of different applications I think we can make from that. One we'll get to in a few minutes. Uh, one I want to give you now, though, okay? Um, again, this is one of the great lines of hope in the book of Lamentations. You say, why do I say this, and how does this connect to Jesus? Well, a man by the name of Christopher Wright, in his commentary on Lamentations, wrote this. L listen to this. I, I'm just going to read, uh, for time's sake, just a little snippet of it, but listen to this. He says, Tam is the first Hebrew word of the last verse of this final acrostic poem in Lamentations, chapter 4, verse 22. And he says this. He says, it is finished, would translate it well. Something has been accomplished. Completed, ended. It is finished, would translate it well. Well, if we want to make connections to Jesus, does that ring a bell to anybody? John 19.30, when Jesus was dying on the cross, what did he cry out? He cried out, it is finished. What's the significance of this? It is finished was, translates a single Greek word, the word to telestai, that is an accounting term. And it means the debt is paid in full. Literally, if you were in the Greek-speaking world of that day and time, and you were an accountant, and uh, you were dealing with someone's account, and someone paid off their debt, you know what you would stamp on, on that piece of paper uh, that, that had their debt on it? You would stamp the word tetelestai on there. It is finished, paid in full. But you know what happened on the cross uh, of Christ? Uh, our sins were placed on Jesus. In our spiritual bank account, all of our debts were transferred to him. And in the grace of God, all of his credits, all of his righteousness, all of his sinless, perfect obedience was transferred to us. Where when we repent and place our faith in Jesus Christ, uh, he stamps on our spiritual bank account to telestai. It is finished. The debt is paid in full. You owe God nothing anymore because he paid all the debt. So what that means is to get to God, and what we're not talking about with repentance is trying to crawl our way to God, trying to earn our way to God, trying to be religious enough to get to God, trying to do enough penance to get to God, trying to do enough good deeds and religious rituals to get to God. We can come to God through Jesus Christ. The cross has bridged the gap between a holy God and sinful men and women because Jesus paid the price. And so if we will acknowledge our sin... 
and have a change of mind and a change of heart toward our sin. See that we're guilty. See that we deserve hell. See that there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves and turn from our sin and turn to Christ in faith, confessing him as Lord. We're saved. We're forgiven. We're cleansed. We're made right with God, not by anything that we've done, but completely by the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. You see, God is a just God, and he is going to mete out justice. We can either experience justice in hell, or we can repent and trust Jesus and uh, trust in the fact that the justice of God, the wrath of God, was poured out on him on the cross, and he paid the debt for all of our sins. So what that means is, if you're not a Christian, you're still in your sins today you can repent and trust in Jesus and be instantaneously forgiven. He is our great high priest making intercession for us. You know, the book of Hebrews said he made a once for all payment for our sins. It is finished. It can, sin can be, the, the penalty of sin can be finished in your life if you will trust Christ today. But it also means as, as a Christian. You know, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 7 that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, which means he saves us completely and permanently. You're not going to lose your salvation, but our fellowship can be broken. But we can repent. We can turn from our sin, and we can be cleansed of those particular sins. Why? Because we have a great high priest at the right hand of the Father who is interceding on our behalf, and we can go to him anytime. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Listen, we have struggles. We fail. We mess up as Christians, but we don't have to live in the shame and the guilt of that because the finished work of Christ covers our sin, past, present, and future. Listen, we're not just forgiven. We're justified. We're declared righteous in the sight of God is what Romans chapter 3 tells us. It is based completely on what Jesus has done for us. And the way you know whether or not that you're a Christian is it's not about anything you've done. In fact, if you're really a Christian, you're not talking about anything you've done. Your only hope and what you're resting your eternal hope in is who Jesus is and what he has done for you, period. A thousand percent. That's all. Because it is finished. Second, we can repent because of the faithfulness of God to keep his covenant. Um, look in the, again, the first verse of chapter 5. What, what did he pray? He says, remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Look and behold our approach. Reproach, And so it makes me think back to Exodus chapter 2. Remember, they were in slavery in Egypt. And again, the whole Bible is about Jesus. You know what the point uh, of the book of Exodus is? What happened in the book of Exodus? They were enslaved through the shedding of blood, through the Passover lamb. They were set free and called by God to go and occupy the promised land of living an abundant life in him. What's that a picture of? We're slaves to sin, but Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, shed his blood on the cross to set us free from the slavery of sin and to bring us into the promised land of an abundant life in him. But it says in Exodus 2.23, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of the sla their slavery and cried out for help. So, you ever feel like your prayers are that way sometimes? It's groaning and crying out. Nothing wrong with praying that way. Uh, he says, their cry for rescue from slavery 
came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And what God do? God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And he rescues them. That's awesome. But you know what's even better? God's made a covenant with us in Christ. And it's a new and it's a better covenant. Nothing wrong with that covenant, but it's obsolete. We have a new covenant in Christ where he's written it on our hearts. And, uh, you know, the covenant that we have with God in Christ is a completely one-sided covenant. It's not based on our performance. It's based on the performance of Jesus. It's not based on our faithfulness. It's based on the faithfulness uh, of God. You know, uh, the, like the one of the covenants in the Old Testament, like in Deuteronomy, if, if you obeyed, you were blessed. If you disobeyed, you were cursed. Well, Galatians tells us that we're all under the curse of sin, except that Jesus became a curse for us so that the blessing of Abraham might come upon us in Christ through the Spirit. Our blessings are in the cross. Our blessings are in this unconditional covenant. Again, our blessings are found in the faithfulness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, not in anything we do. And so what that means is, Christian, God has made a, com a covenant with you that ultimately is about him. It doesn't depend on you. He's faithful. And so even when you blow it, you can go to him. You can repent. You can be forgiven. He'll pick you up. He'll dust you off. He'll get you back on the road of walking with him again. He's faithful. We can repent because of that. We don't have to stay stuck is what that means. He'll change us. We don't have to stay stuck in our sin. We don't have to stay stuck in our guilt. We don't have to stay stuck in our shame. Again, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. So we can repent because of the finished work of Jesus and because of the faithfulness of God to keep his covenant. But then last, that's how we repent, or, or that's why we repent. This is how we repent. We can repent by four things real quick. Number one, by asking for the grace to repent. Again, verse 21 of chapter 5, he says, Turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. Can you relate with this? Have you ever been like struggling with a sin, struggling in your spiritual life, and like you want to overcome it, but you don't feel like you can overcome it? So it's like, God, deliver me from this. God, help me with this. God, change me. Uh, again, it's not our power. It's his power. Uh, but there's the grace available for this. Jonathan Edwards said, despite all your great unworthiness since your conversion, and, and I have great unworthiness since my conversion, before my conversion. I mean, we're not, we're not saved. We're not a, being a Christian is not because of how worthy we are. It's despite us. That's grace. Despite all your great unworthiness since your conversion, Christ's grace remains as great or as wonderful as it was in converting you in the first place. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Grace greater than all of our sin. So asking for the grace to repent. Second, admitting our sin. Again, look at verse 16. Woe to us, for we have sinned. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess means to agree with. It means we call our sin, sin. We admit it to God. 
Sometimes we need to admit it to other people uh, to get help with it. You know, when we've wronged somebody else, sometimes part of repentance is, uh, you know, asking another person for forgiveness. Sometimes it's, it's making restitution. But, you know, he said, woe to us. So it, it, it's, it's confessing it. It's not covering it. It's not manipulating the situation. It's not trying to manage our sin. It's not excusing it. It's not justifying it. It's not rationalizing it. It's not doing something just because we got caught and we want to try to fix the circumstances. It is just being honest with God and with others as needed about I've blown it. That's an essential part of repentance. Three, we need to see that it's also acknowledging that we deserve the consequences of our sin. Again, verse 16, the crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us. You know, he's lamented their circumstances, which there was nothing wrong with that. But here, he's lamenting their sin. And there's a difference. Right? There's a difference. So when we sin, and there's consequences, we reap what we sow. Part of really dealing with our sin is admitting that we deserve those consequences. And, and, and here's something else we, we need to understand here. And I want to take just a minute on this. You know, when we genuinely repent, God forgives us instantaneously. But it doesn't instantaneously remove the consequences of our sin. Now, maybe that can happen on occasions, but there's decisions we have made that the, 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 that the consequences of may not ever be completely eradicated on this side of the grave. There's others that it may take years. What do I mean? Well, I mean, you have a couple that's fornicating. They get pregnant out of wedlock. They can repent of that, but they're still left with dealing with the situation of having a baby. I mean, you disobey, say a Christian marries a non-Christian, gets in a bad relationship. Well, you can repent of that, but you're still in a bad relationship. And, in, and unless that person changes, unless they repent too, you may be dealing with that for a really long time. Um, you know, we make bad, ungodly, unwise, greedy financial decisions. We can repent of that, right? We can ask God to forgive us. He forgives us. We're right with Him. We can start as an act of repentance, you know, doing Dave Ramsey or whatever else. But it still may take years to overcome the consequences of the decisions that we've made. I mean, somebody can be an alcoholic, repent, God uh, forgive them. But if they have cirrhosis of the liver or some health problem because of that, it's not going to uh, just go away instantaneously. I think that's why verse 22 is in there. Uh, you know, it's like, turn us back to you, Lord. Uh, but, you know, if your anger is not too much or what, I think it's just a reminder. I mean, God heard his prayer. God forgave. But still didn't mean there was going to be several more years of consequences. And listen, that's something for us to think about. I think sometimes, I mean, I've been guilty of this. We all believe the lie that, you know, we can do something and God's gracious. He'll, you know, he'll forgive us if we confess it. And that's true. But do we really want 
to, to experience the fruit of the seeds of that sin that we've sown for the rest of our lives or the next several years. But then, the last thing, repentance is actually turning from sin to God. Again, verse 21, turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. So what do we do with this? Listen, if you're not a Christian, God's gracious invitation to you today would be to repent and live, would be to trust me, would be to be honest about your sin, your separation from him, admit that there's nothing you can do to save yourself, and put all of your trust in Jesus Christ, turning from your sin and turning your life over to him as the Lord of your life, relying on his finished work on the cross and not any religious efforts to make you right with God. And if, if that's where you are, I just encourage you right now to you know, call on the name of Jesus, ask him to forgive you. If you've got questions, come talk to me or somebody you know. If you're online, reach out to the online host. Christian, if you're not walking with Jesus, he invites you today to repent and come back to him. You know, if there's a particular area of your life, maybe it's a sin of commission, something you're doing you need to repent of. Maybe it's a sin of omission, uh, something God's calling you to do, and you're running from it. He says to repent. Listen, I know when I was running from the call uh, to preach, that was a sin of omission. I was rebelling against God, saying I want to live my own way, and it was the most miserable period of my life. But do you understand that my misery was an act of God's grace? Because as Spurgeon said, God loves his children too much to let them sin successfully. God loved me enough to not let me be happy in my sin. And if you're out of God's will and you're miserable, thank God for it and turn back to him today and get right with him and let him set you on the right path and begin to restore your life and make it what he wants it to be because it's never going to be right, it's never going to be joyful, it's never going to be satisfying apart from that. Make things others, make things right with others as needed. And maybe today you're suffering, there's ashes in your life and the source isn't sin. You can bring that to Jesus too. And I'm just thankful that we have such a gracious God that despite all of our sin, despite the suffering of this world, that despite all the ashes in our lives, through the cross, he makes beauty rise. Now, and ultimately forevermore, when there's going to be nothing but beauty, where everything's right, where there's no more curse, there's no more sin, there's no more sickness, there's no more sorrow, there's no more suffering. And that's only because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes if we could.